The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Sunnyvale, California. If you want to turn your Bible to Acts chapter 6, that's where we are to bring you up to speed. We are in the book of Acts, and we're just, we started in the beginning, verse 1, and we're going to go through that whole book until Jesus returns. Uh, there are 28 chapters in this book. The book of Acts is a historical account of how the church of Jesus Christ began and how it spread through that first century up until, for the most part, the life and ministry of the Apostle Paul that ended somewhere in the 60s, 80, 30 years or so after Jesus' death. So the book of Acts is a historical account of how Christianity began 2,000 years ago. And the book of Acts also shows us very tangibly and literally how the promise of Jesus was fulfilled. Just a few weeks before Jesus died, just before he knew at that point he was going to die, and he knew that when he went to Jerusalem, he would be arrested, crucified, and then he would go back to the Father. And he made a promise to his apostles. Just after three years of public ministry and training, at the very end, He told the apostles, I will build my church. I will build my church. The church did not exist yet. The Lord Jesus Christ was going to do a new work, and he said, I will build my church. Nothing, nothing is going to stand against it, not even the powers of hell and Satan himself. And so that was 2,000 years ago. Jesus is God. Eternal God, creator God the all-knowing one, the all-powerful one. So when Jesus said, I will build my church, he knew what he was talking about, and he had the ability to accomplish it, and he has. For 2,000 years ever since, Jesus has been building his church locally, universally, and throughout history. In Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. He said that to his, particularly his 11 believing apostles, which included Peter, who was the head. And then in the book of Acts, we pick up, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, the fulfillment of that promise, where in Acts chapter 1 is the ascension of the Son, Jesus Christ. And that's when the church began. And then Acts chapter 2, the church is growing all the more right there in Jerusalem at the hub as the apostles boldly are preaching and are empowered by God to do amazing miracles of healing, just as Jesus did replicating his ministry to validate that they were ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. They did a lot of the work publicly in the temple area, which is a huge, massive area in the temple precincts there. And the crowds were Jews, and many of them were believing, and the church began to grow. And then there was some resistance that began, those who didn't believe, and especially Jewish leaders in the temple area. The same people who arrested Jesus and killed him, began to resist the public preaching of the apostles. They didn't like it as they were preaching in Jesus' name. And so they arrested them a couple of times. Peter and John first got arrested, and they were uh, arrested or taken away for at least one night, and then they had to go on trial, and then they were reprimanded and told, don't ever preach in the name of Jesus Christ again. And then they continued to preach in the name of Jesus Christ, and so these Jewish leaders who did not believe arrested them a second time, and not just Peter and John, but all the apostles, all 12 of them, and threw them in the public prison this time and then had another trial and then reprimanded them again and said, quit preaching in the name of Jesus. We already told you this once. And this time they beat them with rods or they whipped them. And the 12 apostles left rejoicing that they had the privilege of being persecuted and beat on behalf of representing the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were not intimidated. They weren't going to shut up. They weren't going to be silent about the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, they were invigorated all the more. They're going to keep preaching about Jesus regardless of the persecution and the threats and, yes, even death. So that's where we are in the book of Acts. Satan was working overtime to try to shut this thing down, this Jesus thing, this Christianity thing. And Satan probably thought, He was successful when he had Jesus crucified, the Messiah. And Jesus was crucified and he died. And his apostles, they scattered. And the disciples, they were in hiding. And so there was this period of apparent silence in Jerusalem after killing Jesus for at least 50 days where 
The religious leaders thought they were successful. We shut Jesus down. That was short-lived. That was temporary. We don't have to deal with him anymore. Yet 50 days later after his death is the birth of the church, and then it just explodes. So on the first day of the church, the day of Pentecost, hardly two months after Jesus' death and resurrection, the church of Jesus Christ began. Christianity began, which was really a carryover and fulfillment of the Old Testament. So it wasn't a totally new religion. It was the one true religion of all time that actually began in the Garden of Eden. And so that's where we are in the book of Acts. So go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 7 today. The title of the sermon I put there is Managing Problems in the Church. Problems. Did I say problems? In the, is that a typo? Problems in the church. You mean there are problems in the church? Yes, there are problems in church. Why? Because people have problems and people are problems. All of us. We are sinful. That's why that criticism from skeptics and cynics. Oh, I don't like the church. I don't believe in Christianity because it's full of hypocrites. Yeah, no kidding. The Bible doesn't hide that truth. It's all over the Bible. That's the reality. We're sinful. God is the only one that is good. As a matter of fact, there are 13 epistles. Paul, the apostle, wrote two churches, and he wrote every single one to deal with problems in the church. That's why I love the Bible. That's why I love this passage. Managing problems in the church. What church? Well, the church of Jerusalem, the first church. The first church that ever started was the church in Jerusalem with the 12 apostles as the first prototype elders of the church. And there were 120 people total waiting in their church plant. So you had 100 and... Do my math, anyway. The apostles plus whatever, a total of 120 believers. That was their church plant core. And then the day of Pentecost started, and they started the church, and Peter preached the gospel, and it says 3,000 souls believed and were baptized that day. 3,000. It became an instant megachurch on day one. Then within the next few weeks, the apostles kept preaching, and other new believers kept preaching because they were so enthusiastic, and it said that God kept adding to the church. So that in Acts chapter 4, verse 5, it says, the church exploded and grew so much just in a few weeks that as they counted, there were so many, they just counted the men. Because they were now, boy, we just got to estimate, there were 5,000 men in the church, which means there were probably about 5,000 women, 10,000 people in this church, hardly two months old. That's a mega church, not counting the youth group and the nursery and the children's ministry. 15,000 plus. And all throughout... Uh, the book of Acts, Luke keeps giving these updates. Keep in mind, the church is now less than six months old. And in chapter 2, verse 41, it says 3,000 believed the first day. Chapter 4, verse 4, 5,000 men were added. So now we're up to 15,000 or so. Then we read in Acts chapter 5, listen to this update, after the 15,000, at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, uh, and then verse 14, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes, and you know what multitude means? There are so many they can't even count or keep track. This is in addition to the 15,000. This is in Jerusalem. Multitudes of men and women were constantly, continually being added to their number. Okay, now you've got probably over 20 plus thousand people. The church is hardly three months old. Then in chapter 6, verse 7, we're going to see today. Uh, our last verse, the word of the Lord kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly, greatly in Jerusalem. They already had over 25,000, who knows, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So now you could have a megachurch of 20, 30, 40,000 people in Jerusalem alone. Luke, that is amazing. Well, Luke doesn't stop there. Uh, Luke chapter 9, verse 31. Uh, the gospel keeps going. It's all over Jerusalem. Then it's all spreads into Judea, the surrounding area, and then to Samaria, and the church is growing like crazy. And then in chapter 9, uh, Luke gives this update, and he says, so the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace, being built up, that means growing, and going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And it continued to increase. That means their numbers were amassing even more and more. Wow. So... Mega, mega, mega church. It, can it keep growing? Well, it does. Chapter 12, verse 24, he says the same thing. The church 
kept growing all the more. Chapter 16, verse 5, and the church kept increasing all the more. Chapter 19, verse 20, and God kept adding to the church and many more disciples. And then at the very end of the book, chapter 28, 31, it concludes with the church continued to grow. This is amazing. This is amazing. This massive growth. So that is exciting. If you're at a church, you work at a church, you serve at a church, if you're a normal person, you want your church to grow. You don't want your church to die. You don't want your church to be sick. You don't want your church to be static. The church is a living organism, a living organism. Anything that is a living organism must grow. It must reproduce. All living organisms grow and reproduce. If they are healthy, if they are not, they become static. If they are not, they die. They're not they experience atrophy. The same is also true of the church. So uh, it's just normal to want your church to grow. And not just in terms of numerical numbers and the breadth of it, but also in the depth of it. And that's what was happening here in the early church and fulfilling the promise of the Lord Jesus who said, I will build my church. From the very beginning, GBF, this church started as a church plant with about 19, 20 adults under the supervision, direction, and prayer of others and a kind of a sponsoring church. And from the very beginning, our leadership here, we knew this principle. We believed in this principle. We aren't going to build the church. We aren't going to grow the church. It is God and God alone. Jesus builds the church, not us. The Holy Spirit builds the church and grows, not us. We are simply stewards. We are under shepherds. We are servants. We are partakers of the church. It is God's church. It is Christ's body. He is the head. But we do desire growth because growth is a sign of health. So growth is exciting. And being there, boy, this would have been exciting just to see this church just explode. Well, just months before, there was nobody around. You couldn't find a disciple anywhere. They're all hiding in the bushes and in dark rooms, fearing for their lives. And now you've got a mega church of thousands and thousands of people. That is awesome. And you've only got 12 apostles who are trying to head and spear, spearhead this thing. 12, they're like the quasi-elders of the church. Peter calls himself an elder. He was an apostle, but he was also a shepherd, a pastor, and an elder. So the 12 apostles were the first elders of a megachurch of tens of thousands of people. So growth is exciting. Exponential growth is exciting. But exponential growth creates practical problems and logistical problems. And that's exactly what we have here in Acts chapter 6. With this explosive growth, and, Paul, and Luke has been stopping and pausing every chapter, highlighting that the early church had amazing unity, supernatural unity. Their hearts were knit together. That is a testimony of the Holy Spirit of God. One of the byproducts and fruits of the Holy Spirit is peace between one another, which is unity. One of the marks of Satan is division, dissension. Satan hates the church, he hates Christians, he hates Jesus, he hates the truth, he hates the Bible, he is forevermore attacking the church. And Satan has many strategies. Oh, I will attack from without. I will persecute the church to try to shut it down. Well, we saw that already in the book of Acts. It didn't work. Purified the church, but actually spawned growth in the early church. But that's not Satan's only tactic is persecution from without then satan tried another thing that he tries and that's immorality and compromise on the inside of the church by professing christians we saw that with ananias and sapphira corruption blatant immoral unethical sin lying overtly and openly to the leadership and the people of the church well that didn't work god struck them dead through his discipline and god uses discipline to prune and then grow the church all the more and purify it. So persecution tends to purify the church, which breeds growth. And discipline tends to purify the church, which also breeds growth. So everything is backfiring from Satan's point of view. So I'm going to try something else. Another one of the tactics of Satan is creating division among the believers in the church. And that's what we have in Acts chapter. Here is a, here is a problem that we haven't seen in the early church up until now dissension among believers, conflict among the saints, disunity in the local church. It started here and was recorded for us and it has existed for 2,000 years. We have that here at Grace Bible Fellowship. 
Did you know if you are looking for a perfect church, sayonara. It's not GBF. As a matter of fact, there is no perfect church on planet Earth today. But there are healthy churches and obedient churches. There are also disobedient churches and unhealthy churches. There are biblical churches and unbiblical churches. So the church in Jerusalem was an obedient church, a biblical church, a healthy church, a growing church, yet a church that had problems because it had sinners. From the leadership rank all the way down into the pews. Oh, they didn't have pews. And so this is just an amazing uh, narrative that God in his sovereignty provides for the saints of all the ages for a lot of practical benefits that we, we can even implement in our own life, in our own church life today. So that's my goal this morning. So, and, and one of the main themes throughout is how to manage problems in the church. Because I'm a pastor, a full-time pastor at this church. I've been a pastor at several other churches. You know what? At every church that I was ever a pastor, you know, those churches had problems. They did. I began to think, hmm, maybe it's me. But then I realized, you know what? I have a lot of friends who are pastors, and they all have problems at their church too. Can't escape it. And so in God's sovereignty, he provides a widespread problem, a logistical problem that turned into dissension, friction among believers. That if it wasn't dealt with properly and immediately, it could have spread like cancer. It could have, it could have divided this church. It could have ruined their testimony. When Christians get caught up in dissension with one another, we turn our focus from the world, evangelizing, being a witness, serving, and we turn our guns on each other, and we become disobedient and fruitless, and we're not doing what God has called us to do to reach the world. And that's what happens when there's infighting in a church, when we become self-focused. And we see that here. That could have happened, but with God's wise leadership in the apostles, he was able to deal with this problem in his church, beautifully, and there are principles we can glean from here to apply to our own lives. Let's go ahead and look at how the early leadership of the church managed this first problem that was logistical in the church. Acts chapter 6, verse uh, 1 through 7, I gave you six principles to glean here. Here's what the passage says. Now, at this time, at the time, what time? Well, early on in the church, church is probably not even three months old, exponential explosive growth. Uh, there's been some persecution. There has been unity that God has preserved. So there's been much to celebrate about. The, the early believers have been sacrificial with one another, meeting one another's needs. The apostles are rejoicing at what God is doing. It was at this time, early on in the church. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint, a complaint, there it is, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. And the twelve apostles summoned the congregation. They called the whole congregation, thousands of people, church meeting. I don't know where they could, they must have, where would they have that many uh, to accommodate thousands and thousands of people? Maybe out in public at Solomon's portico, it was huge. Maybe out on the street somewhere. They didn't have a church building. They were buildingless. So they summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us, the apostles, the elders, the pastors of the church, to neglect the word of, the, of God in order to serve tables, but select from among your own selves in this massive congregation, brothers, men, believers, seven of them of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we, the apostles, will put in charge of this task at hand. Verse 4, but we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the statement found approval with the whole congregation. That is amazing. You talk about unity. Everybody agreed on the plan. That is a miracle. Thousands were pleased. So they chose seven men. First was Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Then there was Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these men, they brought before the apostles. And after praying, the apostles laid their hands on these seven men. And the word of God kept spreading. And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So let's go ahead and look at the problem and then the solution that God provided through these obedient believers. Point number one. Oh, uh, let me read at the top there. The body of Christ is composed of finite sinners. That's us. As such, practical problems will arise 
in the church. If you want to be a pastor in the church, an elder in the church, a deacon in the church, a leader in the church, you have got to be able to deal with problems. You've got to be a realist and solution-oriented in obedience to God. In Acts chapter 6, the apostles model godly leadership of how to manage challenges among the saints. Point number one in dealing with problems in the church is the leadership of the church, they properly diagnose the problem. That is huge. They properly diagnose the problem. You know, you can't solve any problem until you properly diagnose, take an assessment, and are objective with all the facts before you come up with a solution. You can't do it. You can't be an effective parent with your kids fighting with each other until you get the whole story and come up with the proper diagnosis. You can't just listen to the first tattletale that comes your way and you only get half the story and you operate on that. That's not justice. That's not biblical leadership. You need a proper, fully informed diagnosis of the problem. This is true in biblical counseling. Most of biblical counseling involves two parties who are in conflict, whether it's married people or two people in the church, you can't just listen to half the story. No, you listen to the whole story. You need to come up with, before anything, you need to come up with a proper diagnosis and assessment of what is really going on. You need all the facts, all the information. That is why, wisely in a court of room, at least in the good old days, they would make a vow about the truth and the whole truth. Not selective facts. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The whole truth. And that was the task of the apostles. There was a problem. It was logistical. It had to do with numbers. There's 12 of them. We saw earlier in chapter 4 that they are collecting money from the saints and they are distributing money and material goods to those in need throughout the church. And there are thousands and thousands of people. And they're trying, the apostles, they're trying to keep track of this. Collecting the money, counting the money, keeping a list, distributing it. This was rooted in their religion of the Old Testament as well, by the way. This wasn't a totally new thing. God made it clear to Moses when he started the nation of Israel and gave them the Pentateuch, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, four times God instructed Moses and that covenant community where they had almost two million people. Here's all the things you need to do. Here's your 633 laws. And some of these laws requires you as God's people to take care of widows and orphans, take care of the poor, take care of aliens, Take care of strangers, take care of orphans, take care of widows. And God was very specific of how to do that. And that was a practice of the Jewish community from the time of Moses, 1400 B.C., all the way down to the time of Christ. That's why in the book of Acts and during the ministry of Jesus, we see frequently people begging for money. Alms because the Jewish people had an obligation to meet the needs of the poor. And many times the poor were widows. And Jesus talked about caring for the widows. James talked about this is pure religion that pleases God, caring for orphans and widows in their distress. This is part of the ethic of Christianity and biblical religion. And so this is, this is normal for the apostles who have shepherds' hearts, millions or thousands of people trying to do their ministry of teaching the word of God and praying and at the same time meeting practical needs and they want to take care of these Widows. Now, in the days of Jerusalem at this time, we just had two major feast days in Jerusalem where people would come from throughout the world, Jews, to migrate to Jerusalem, headquarters where the temple was, to celebrate those feasts. Pentecost was one of them. And before that was Passover. So you have Jews coming from afar, all over the then-known world, Jews, traveling sometimes weeks and months to get to Jerusalem. And many of these Jews did not speak Aramaic or Hebrew, which was the language of Jerusalem. They spoke Greek because Greek was the, the language of the day. Hellenization. So just about everybody spoke Greek. But a lot of these Jews didn't speak Hebrew and Aramaic. And so you've got a lot of these Jewish-speaking or uh, Greek-speaking Jews converging on Jerusalem for the holidays, then a lot of them get saved while they're there when they hear the gospel from Peter and the apostles, and they decide, you know what, I'm not going back home. There's nobody there. There are no Christians there. There's no church there. I may be rejected and persecuted. I am staying here in Jerusalem. And that's why Jerusalem just swelled with people. So now you've got a, a contingent of Greek-speaking Jews who got saved who aren't going back home 
In addition, you have the population of widows growing in Jerusalem because many times Jewish widows, as they were spread all out throughout the land of Israel and beyond, if their husband died and he was the provider and they didn't have a means to provide for themselves, many times they would go to Jerusalem because that was headquarters of their religion and their faith. And they knew that they could get provision from the people of God in Jerusalem. So there was a contingent of widows as well in Jerusalem already. And many of them responded to the gospel, got saved. So you have this mixed community. For the most part, the first church was all Jewish, men and women, many who were from afar who spoke Greek only, didn't know Hebrew and Aramaic. And then there were those who were indigenous or local to the area, those Jews who spoke Greek but also spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. And that became to be a challenge in the church early on when you have believers who speak different languages. We have that today in the Silicon Valley, right here in the Bay Area. We have churches that have, you go to 9 o'clock Chinese Mandarin service, and then 11 o'clock, the younger people, they go to the English-speaking congregation at the same church. I've preached many times in those ethnic churches. Guess what? Many times those ethnic churches, they have problems. And a lot of times the dissension arises over the difference in languages. I've actually been pulled into some, some of those churches to give counsel to help stop the infighting and to, get, to give counsel. Because we've got the English-speaking Christians and the Mandarin-speaking Christians in the same community, and it is causing a problem. That is a logistical problem, and it shouldn't turn into a relational problem or dissension. There is a solution. Well, that's what was going on here. Part of the diagnosis at this time, writes Luke, who you know got this information from first-hand witnesses. It was a significant event. He's writing in retrospect, and at this time, uh, the first explosion of dissension in the church that could have racked the church while the disciples were increasing. The church is growing like crazy. A complaint arose. Man, that automatically takes me back to the days of Moses. He's taken. They are in slavery in Egypt. They are being uh, brutalized. And then God sends Moses to set the people free. Two million people, they see these ten miracles. And then they go through the Red Sea, another amazing miracle. Then they get in the desert, and before you know it, they are complaining. A complaint arose, a complaint. And for 40 years, a complaint arose, a complaint arose. Complaining is sinful. Philippians 2, don't complain if you're a Christian. If you do, you are a lousy witness to the onlooking world. That is the living McManus translation. But a complaint arose in the church among the believers on the part of the Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jews who are speaking up on behalf of the Greek-speaking widows, their contingent. So the Greek-speaking Jews, they are complaining about the Hebrew-speaking Jews in this church. They are complaining to the leadership. They are complaining to the... I don't know who they were directly complaining to, but eventually it got to the apostles. could very well be they were complaining to the apostles. Boy, if you want to be a leader in the church, get ready for entertaining complaints from people in the church. Complaint arose on the part of uh, the Jewish-speaking... or the Greek-speaking Jews against the Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jews. Why? Here is the problem, part of the diagnosis. Because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving. Of food is not in the text. It's just the daily serving. You have more Hebrew-speaking Jews in the church of Jerusalem. The Greek-speaking Jews, they are the minority. Could be a reason why they're being overlooked. Some of them are foreigners. Maybe some of them aren't as well-known for whatever reason. And so in this distribution where the apostles were collecting everything and distributing things and writing out benevolence checks and uh, giving money and food and that kind of a thing, uh, the... Greek-speaking widows began to get, they were getting neglected. This was a real problem. So that's the diagnosis. We have a real problem. So part of the diagnosis is that the apostles came to the conclusion, this is not a false problem. This is legitimate. That's good leadership. You actually listen to the people. You don't just blow them off. Somebody's complaining or whining and they bring up some criticism and you just don't like the criticism and you shut them down. I'll be thankful. Quit complaining. The apostles, they actually listened to the complaint. And they diagnosed and assessed and they came to the conclusion, you know, wow, they're right. 
Mrs. So-and-so totally got neglected and she's needy and she's deserving it. And we have enough and we missed it. Us 12, I don't, us 12 guys, we missed it with the 35,000 people we have here. Diagnosis. They diagnosed the problem, the complaint. So they didn't just shut down the complaint. That's good leadership. Number two. Well, what did they do about it? They heard a complaint. They investigated it. They realized it was legit. They were partly responsible. The apostles, just by virtue of being finite and limited. So they're proactive. They are proactive. That's a good leader. A, a, a good leader in the church welcomes the complaints, welcomes the problem, assesses, investigates, is objective, doesn't get overly defensive, doesn't shut down, is not lording it over the people. Is not authoritarian. He's a good leader. And the apostles, they were good leaders. They were well trained. The Lord Jesus himself. And they're empowered by the Holy Spirit now. And they diagnose and then they take action. That's a good leader. Take action. Not passive. Not retracting. Not running from problems. Not ignoring problems. Not dismissing problems. Pretending problems don't exist in the church, which many people do. Very common. Too common. Jay Adams, longtime pastor, great author. Wise man, he says one of he thinks the greatest weakness that he's seen in his fifty years of ministry among pastors is they lack courage in the face of problems. Jay Adams said that, and what he meant by that was well, many pastors they're just unwilling to admit there are problems. Uh, not the apostles, they're proactive. And look what they did, verse 2. So the 12 immediately they took action. Boom. They, they summoned the whole congregation. The whole congregation. So it's participating. This is also good leadership. Allowing the body of Christ to participate and give input. The Spirit of God lives in every true saint out there. And the Holy Spirit of God could be prompting them, moving on them, giving them insight, giving them perspective. That the apostles, they need to hear that. The collective wisdom of the body of Christ. A massive church meeting. That is frightening. There is nothing more frightening for a pastor or elder than to have a spontaneous, unplanned, church-wide meeting to deal with the problem in the church. Well, they were courageous and proactive and good leaders. So the, they, uh, they summoned the whole congregation of the disciples and they said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Uh, and that's why I put they were proactive as good leaders. And also they were good leaders because they, they knew what their priorities were. Okay, we cannot be distracted. We cannot neglect what Christ has called us to do. We cannot be micromanagers. We are not gifted in every area. God has given us limited gifts. We need to identify and stick with those gifts and do what God has called us to do. Therefore, we cannot attend to these other real problems that affect real lives and need to be dealt with right now. So part of wise leadership is assessing the priorities. Pastor Cliff, we have a, a problem in the nursery over here, over there. Pastor Cliff, we have a problem in the fellowship meal with this after that. Pastor Cliff, we have a problem over here with it. You know, I cannot deal with all the problems. As a matter of fact, on some of those problems, I am the last guy you should be talking to. Because I'm either like, uh, the, the, I don't know what to do. Or I don't care. Or I don't have time. Or I'm not gifted. Or I know somebody who can really do that well. You know, a lot of times what I actually do in counseling, people come to me for counseling. And the first thing, I'll try to diagnose, assess, listen Think, pray, look for the Bible, and many times, and then I'll, sometimes I'll give counsel where I think God might be leading. But many times I will say, you know what, you need to go talk to uh, Elder Sam. You know what, you need to go talk to Elder Derek. You know, you need to talk to Elder Tip, and on, or maybe even just a believer in the church. You need to go talk to this woman of God in the church, in light of your problem, because I, I am not gifted in that area. They have more experience. They are going to help you more. And the apostles knew that. And that's what they're doing here. We know what our priorities are. We will not be taken away off focus from our priorities, what God has called us to do. That won't help anyone. But that's what Satan wants to do. That's a strategy of Satan that's very subtle. Get the pastor to start a soup kitchen and he gives all of his time to the soup kitchen or the lemonade stand. 24-7. Pastor, are you maintaining the, the lemonade stand? 
Those kids, they're thirsty out there. Or all kinds of, I mean, there's just countless programs that you could get swallowed up in that take you away from your part. There are good things to do, and then there are better things to do, and then there's the best thing to do. And the best steward is doing the best thing that God has called you to do. That's why they're good leaders. So they summoned the whole congregation. They said, it is not desirable for us. Notice they are, another thing, attribute about good leadership is they are in unison. They said, the 12, collectively as one. So they obviously talked about this, prayed about this, were confirmed, unanimous consent. The Spirit of God has led us to this decision. So we speak with one voice. That's the kind of leadership you need in a healthy church. Not divided leadership. Staff members and elders pitted against one another. That's recipe for a church split. That's not so with the apostles. It is not desirable for us with one voice to neglect our priorities, which is the word of God and to, uh, to, in order to serve tables. And they are not minimizing the importance of serving table. By the way, the word table there, trapeze, trapeze sounds like a trapeze, but it's not related to that. It just refers to a table. And it could be a table for food, but it was also a table for the money collectors. When Jesus turned over the tables, same thing. This could be maybe not serving food, just distributing the money that they were collecting. So we, we can't distribute the money. It, that is too time-consuming. Somebody else needs to do it. It is important. It needs to be done. It honors God. It's an important ministry in the church. And there are plenty of qualified people here to do it. So that's good leadership, discerning where the priorities are. So they diagnosed fully the problem, came up with an assessment. They were unified. They spoke with one voice. They talked to the people. They allowed the people to participate in the solution. All of this is good leadership in the church. No church should be a one-man show. We've got too many churches with the, there's a one-man show, the Lone Ranger. That is not God's design. That is unhealthy. Or one guy wields all the power. No. Or one guy puts himself up here on the hierarchy chart and the people are down here. No. There's one person. That's Jesus is up here. Jesus, the Trinity, the Bible are up here. We're all down here on the org chart. So the apostles welcome participation for the solution with the people. Number three. So diagnosed. They were proactive. Number three, they utilized the saints. Verse three. First, they informed the saints. Another key issue of Church leadership is being a good communicator, a good, thorough communication. When we were about to start this church 10 years ago with Mike Birchfield, pastor down in Morgan Hill, who helped us, he was a counselor to us before we started. And he has been for 10 years now, Pastor Mike. But I'll never forget, we were about to launch this church, and a month before the church started, he told me, Cliff, this is a priority for you. As an elder shepherd, you need to be an excellent communicator to the people in your church. And he wasn't talking about from the pulpit. He's talking about communication uh, via what's going on in the church on a personal level, interacting with the people. They need to know what's going on. It is not your church, McManus. So you need to be, you need to bend over backwards continually communicating. And he used the word over communicating every venue conceivable. Bulletins, announcements, emails, personal conversation, uh, networks of communication, deacons, people, leaders, ongoing communication. Nothing more th- frustrates people if you don't communicate in a church and things are being done in a corner. And the apostles are modeling that as well. Thorough, open communication. Welcoming the saints, verse 3. So, and then they told the people, but select from among you. Man, that's trust. Good leaders trust the saints. The definition of a micromanager is that they don't trust people. And so they have to do everything themselves. Micromanaging squelches leadership, organizations, and organisms like the church. But select from among you. So now they're delegating authority. The apostles operated, elders operate, pastors operate with delegated authority from Almighty God. They don't have inherent authority. I have authority in the church, but I got it all from God. It is limited authority. It's delegated to me. I'm responsible for it. It is clearly defined, the parameters in Scripture, 
And here, the apostles had the same thing. And they delegated their delegated authority. They empowered the people. Again, trust. But select from among your own selves. You, you guys know the people. Select from my brethren. They had to be believers. That's a qualification of the men they were to select. Brethren, they have to be from among you. You know them. You know their reputation. You know who they are. You know their character. That's the point. Why it has to be from among you. Don't select an outsider uh, from some organization way up north who's the church problem solver and we'll give them a 10,000 bucks to come in here and investigate and solve our problem in three weeks. It doesn't work that way. You'd have to be there for a year just to diagnose the situation. From among you, brothers, that means believers, seven men. I want men involved in this. Not The word for men means males, not women. And it's not any men. It's qualified men. I believe this was the beginning of deacons. Because one, two, three times in this passage, a cognate of diakonos is used, a verb and a noun. Deacon is diakonos. First cognate or related word to that is in verse 1, where it says serve tables. Serve, that's what a deacon is, serve. Diakonia. And then the verb in verse 2, serve tables. Diakonane. And then in verse 4, a form of diakonos. Again, so they aren't called deacons, but I believe this was the beginning of the need of the ministry of the deacons. arose later in the church. They didn't have deacons in the Old Testament. They had elders in the Old Testament. Deacons was kind of a new thing, but... It eventually became a formal office in the church, as Paul told us in 1 Timothy. So, they're involving the saints. They utilize the saints and put a premium on character and the qualifications. So that was the emphasis. Pick men, but not any men. Pick men who are qualified, and not qualified in the ways and the eyes of the world, but in terms of their spiritual character. Those are the five qualifications. From among you, they have to be believers. They have to be men, qualified men. They have to be men of good reputation, so they are known They are above reproach, is what that means. They are full of the Spirit. Full of the Spirit means controlled by the Spirit of God. And you know who they are among you. You've been watching them. You see them. Full of the Spirit. Well, look at verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power. Stephen was a man in their midst who was full of the Spirit. He was known by the congregation. He had been there, a disciple, faithful, serving, even doing miracles like the apostles. And just an incredibly godly man. So find men full of the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit of God. And also they are full of wisdom. They're controlled by wisdom. Uh, Dealing with problems is difficult, and you need to think clearly and sober-mindedly. That's why the word sober-minded is a qualification of an elder and a deacon. You can't be wishy-washy in your thinking. You can't be driven by your emotions. You have to be objective. You have to be stable. You have to be insightful. You have to be discerning. This is all... A a nuanced use of the mind as a judge. And that needs to be a qualification. They need to operate with wisdom. They can't ostracize the Greek Greek Jews. Oh, you know what? You're in the minority. Too bad. They have to be wise. And by the way, they, they selected seven wise men. It's amazing the wisdom that these seven men had. And the people were wise in, in choosing these men. Uh, another, oh, and then at the end of the verse 3, whom we may put in charge of the task. So a good leader does not relinquish oversight and control in the face of problems. That's a sissy, not a leader. And the, the apostles don't do that. They're delegating authority. They're letting others, they're assigning the task to others, but they're not letting go of the leash. They are in charge. They're holding on to the reins. Okay, we're going to guide this and manage this, oversee this, supervise this, monitor this. We're going to stay engaged. That's the end of verse 3. Whom we, the apostles, we will put them in charge. We will be hands-on. We're not micromanagers, but we're still in charge, overseeing. That's the word for an elder, is an overseer. Leaders who lack courage, pastors, whoever, all the time. Dads, there's a problem. Uh, Ignore it, run away from it. I'm afraid. I don't want to deal with it. Let somebody else deal with it. And we are all tempted, I think, at times to behave that way. But we can't. But wisdom here is just getting the saints involved. Uh, number four, what else did they do? Well, ultimately, they didn't trust in themselves. They were apostles, after all. I mean, they got three years of hands-on personal training from Jesus Christ, God Almighty. Woo! 
Talk about a resume. I knew Jesus. I had dinner with Jesus. I laid on Jesus' chest. He was my best friend. He let me see this. I did miracles in his name. I cast out demons. I'm an apostle. They did not rely on their own strength. In the end, that's why they were godly, good leaders. You don't trust in yourself. Trust in God and God's power. Verse 4. They trusted in God's power. Verse 4. But we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So two things he was doing. Here's our priorities. We need to keep doing this. We can't neglect the ministry of prayer and the word. And I also believe the apostles were saying, you know what? We need to be in prayer starting right now about this problem. We need to trust God that he's going to help us resolve this problem. We're committed to prayer. We need to continue to be in prayer. This is the priority of a, an apostle. But like I said earlier, Peter and the apostles were also elders and pastors. They were the leaders of the church. And so this is also true to this day for pastors and elders in the church. What should a pastor's job description be at the top of his list, a pastor at any church? This is very basic. He needs to make a priority of prayer and the ministry of the word. What's the ministry of the word? It's not preaching. Preaching is one facet of the ministry of the word. Ministry of the word is the big umbrella. Ministry of the word is teaching, disseminating, explaining, nurturing, feeding people with the word of God as a shepherd. And you do that from the pulpit. You do that in small group Bible study. You do that in one-on-one conversations counseling the saints. There are many venues you do that. A qualification of an elder, according to 1 Timothy 3, is that elders need to be apt to teach, able to teach, implication because they need to be doing the ministry of the word. Here at our church, well, I'm the main preacher. Does that mean that other elders aren't preaching? No, they're teaching. Every one of our elders, this is a requirement of being an elder at GBF, they need to be involved in a regular way in the ministry of the word. So I preach from the pulpit, teach in Sunday school, count whatever, and then every other one of our elders is either teaching, preaching somewhere to a group on a regular basis to to a small group or individual counseling, the ministry of the word, ongoing. It is an absolute essential of a shepherd. Jesus said, feed my sheep to Peter. Feed my, with what? We feed them with one thing. It is the word of God. Biblical truth is food for the soul. It is milk for the soul. It is meat for the soul. That's what the Bible says. I have nothing else to feed you except the Bible. Preach the word. So it's praying for your people, feeding them the word. That's what Elders, pastors are called to do. Regarding prayer, this is absolutely essential. This needs to be a vital uh, foundational ministry in our church at GBF. Praying. And so our elders, we knew this from the beginning. How many different ways can we pray for our people and pray with our people and give our people an opportunity to pray? And so ever since we started this church, you know what, guys? We're gonna, we are going to pray every Sunday before church starts as a group of leaders and elders in this church. And we have been for 10 years. We haven't missed a Sunday that we have all been here. Ten years. Paul was a pastor. Paul was a shepherd. Paul knew the same thing. His priority was praying for God's people and teaching the word. And it's amazing. If you look at Colossians chapter 1, the beginning of the chapter, and Ephesians chapter 1, and Philippians chapter 1, What do those three things have in common? Paul started those churches. He planted those churches. He pastored those churches. Then he went away. He wrote back and he said in the beginning of all three of those letters to those churches, he said specifically, I am praying for you by name. Wow, Paul must have been praying a lot because that's a lot of people. praying. He prays for his members by name. We need to replicate that here at GBF. Praying for all of our members by name. Which means we need to know our people. And where their prayers are needed. And you need to help us out, people. James 5 says, anybody there needs sick, down, discouraged, then go to your elder and ask for prayer. They're not omniscient. Tell them. This is basic to what we're called to do by God, being praying people. I pray for you by name. And I think the one in Colossians says, not only am I praying for you, I thank my God for you. Every single saint in that church in Colossae, that Paul, even the knuckleheads, the crybabies, the whiners. He said, I thank God for you. He even said that to the Corinthians in chapter. I thank God for you, you divisive, immoral people who talk behind my back. I love you. 
And he prayed for them. That is amazing. That is a heart of love. That is the heart of Jesus. That is a true shepherd. A pastor elder cannot turn on their sheep and badmouth them behind their back or decide, oh, I'm going to love this sheep more than that sheep. It's not the heart of Christ. This is basic to shepherding ministry, and this is what they're committed to. And, and prayer is power. That's supernatural prayer. It's invoking Almighty Creator God. God, you need to come down here from heaven on earth and do, do what we are not capable of doing. We, we, do we believe in miracles at this church? Are we a signs and wonders church? Well, we, stu- we do believe in miracles. The miracle of salvation, the miracle of answered prayer, among others. Truly is a miracle. So they trust in God's power. Let's go on to the next one. Uh, number five, good leaders, they knew the saints' support was vital. So this is related to number three. They knew they needed the support of the saints. This, is a, this wasn't the apostles' church. This was the body of Christ, collective body. Verse 5, in the statement, found approval with the whole congregation. That is amazing. Have you ever been, don't answer this out loud. Have you ever been to a church meeting where you gave a proposal and it was shot down by 37 different people all at once? I have. Very discouraging. I think, wait, they're a member and they're a Christian and so are they and their opinions are totally at odds and there is no way of harmonizing those two opinions. Yikes. That's where you need prayer, the miracle of God, the Holy Spirit of God who unifies. That's part of his job, to unify the hearts of the saints. So amazingly, in verse 5, the statement found approval with the entire congregation. Um, That's why I believe ever since GBF started, here's another principle of leadership that we believe comes from the Bible here at GBF. And we've always operated this way. If we are making a decision or a big decision at church as elders or leaders in the church, that decision has to be unanimous before we act on it. And early on, there were times where it wasn't unanimous, and we're like, nope, we ain't moving forward. We'll table this. We'll just, we'll just wait for weeks and months if we have to. Because the Holy Spirit, we believe, unites the hearts of the saints in good time when there's humility, prayer, seeking His will. He brings unity. And that's what you have here, unity of the Holy Spirit. I always get discouraged when some pastor, young pastor, tells me at a shepherd's conference, but yeah, I'm at a new church over here, and yeah, I got voted in 76 for and 24 against. And he's all happy. I'm like, wow, so you're starting out with 24 people, in the, 24% of the people in the church who are opposed to you. Yikes. I don't want to, I wouldn't go to that church. I, I want to like 100%. And the Spirit of God can do that as he knits the hearts of the people. And and so look what God did through these people, through the leaders, through uh, the saints. They got these seven qualified men. And seven, there's nothing mystical about the number seven. You must have seven deacons in your church. No, you don't. I think it was just practical and pragmatic because the apostles, they had been trained by Jesus to delegate, to to deal with logistical problems that were massive. Sermon on the Mount. Feeding of the 20 plus thousand, Jesus told them, and he, they watched. Amazing delegation, how Jesus divided and conquered. Okay, uh, pick a uh, hundred people, divide, and then pick 50, and divide them into groups of 50 and a hundred, and boom, and sit them there and put them there, and just like that. So they learned delegation from Jesus to deal with massive crowds. They know how to do this. And if they know their Bible, they know it from the days of Moses and Jethro. Same thing. How do you deal with two million people? Well, they were led by God in the Scriptures. And so they came up with seven guys, and here they are. Stephen, okay, we're going to learn about Stephen in chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter in the beginning of chapter 8. Stephen is a major character now in all of chapter 7, very significant in the church. He was full, that's why it says specifically about him, he was full of faith in the Holy Spirit, but doesn't say that about the other guys specifically, but they were. Philip, we're going to learn about him in chapter 8 and following. Chapter 21, he had four daughters who were prophetesses, gifted with the prophecy then there was procurus don't know who he is but if you have a son name him procurus then you'll have a biblical name nicanor timon parmenas what's your kid's name he's so cute parmenas what parmenas nicholas what about nicholas the end of verse five well he was unique he was a proselyte from antioch he was probably a gentile so there's the first gentile in the jerusalem church right there that we know of so it wasn't cornelius who was not in jerusalem but nicholas proselyte from antioch so they wanted the saints' support. 
Absolutely essential to dealing with problems, especially dissension among the body. Uh, number six, when you do that, when you are a good leader, an obedient leader, following the leading of the Spirit, getting the people involved, committing things to prayer, maintaining the right priorities, being courageous, listening to the people, being humble, being unified in your response, wanting God's will, then God blesses. And that's verse 7. God bless their obedience. Oh, verse 6 first. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. So that was just a public sign of their blessing, delegating authority. We commission these men. We entrust them to God. We believe in their ministry. And in the Bible, elders get their hands laid on. Deacons get their hands laid on as an outward sign of God's approval. And then finally, when you're obedient, uh, God will bless. That's point number six. God blesses their obedience, and that is verse seven. Uh, Satan was unsuccessful. He didn't thwart the church and its growth through persecution from without, corruption from within, nor from dissension among the saints. Faced the problem head on. They were practical. Got a biblical solution. God continued to bless. And that's why in verse 7 it says, The word of God kept on spreading. I guarantee you that if they didn't handle that in a proper way, an obedient way, a biblical way, and they just let it get out of control, maybe they just ignored the problem, and then you had these two factions develop between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Jewish or the Hebrew-speaking Jews, you could have had a church split. What kind of testimony would that be to the onlooking world what kind of model and precedent would that have set for the church moving forward no they dealt with it god was pleased that's what one of the psalms says that god god is pleased when brothers and the lord get along he's pleased he is grieved when we aren't and the word of god kept on spreading with God's blessing kept on spreading in addition to the 20,000 plus that have believed. By the way, so believers are now sprawling all over the campus of the temple precincts. That has got to be annoying for that Jewish leadership. And they tell us, historians tell us that there were 8,000 or more local priests in Jerusalem who helped oversee the daily doings in the temple. 8,000 in Jerusalem alone helping with the temple. 8,000 priests. They would rotate on their... But there were 8,000. And many of them were there every day for the two, three times of prayer. They were public. They were watching. They were around, commiserating with the people, doing their thing. 8,000 priests. So these 8,000 priests plus... One commentator says 18,000 priests in Jerusalem around the temple. They're listening and watching these apostles and these Christians, the explosion of the church. They're overhearing. They're investigating. They're being nosy. They're... And they're listening and they're hearing the gospel. And guess what starts happening? Priests start getting convicted and believing in the gospel. That's verse 7. The word of God kept on spreading. And a number, a huge contingent of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Wow. Priests. Okay, that's the leadership, the upper echelon of the opposition in the Jewish leadership. who oppose. Now they're priests. Some of their leaders are getting saved. That's when they decide, you know, we, gotta, we have got to shut this down. You know what? To shut this thing down once and for all, drastic measures, jail didn't work, beatings didn't work, reprimands didn't work, we need to solicit Saul of Tarsus. He'll shut them down. And he tried. And we're going to see Saul start operating in chapter 7 and chapter 8. He was vicious. Card-carrying leader of the anti-Christian, I hate Jesus movement. That's also part of why this story is here. To introduce us to Stephen, who introduces us to Saul of Tarsus, the most wicked sinner that ever walked this earth, who became the greatest saint, who helped found and establish the church. That is the grace of God. That is awesome. With that, let's go ahead and commit our time to the Lord in prayer and thank Him that He's given us principles by which to just keep operating in the church as he builds his church through his people. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for a good week and good weekend, for the wedding, the time to celebrate a new thing that you're doing in our midst. 
there are many things to be thankful, Lord. I also thank you for a time of worship, fellowship with the saints, to be in your word. Thank you for the clarity of scripture. Thank you for its relevance, even though this passage is 2,000 years old. You have something very specific to say to us as a church today. God, through your Holy Spirit that lives inside of every believer, help us to remember these principles and implement them accordingly. And as a result, we'll see you blessed. Those who don't know you personally, God, we continue to pray for your Holy Spirit to work on their hearts, their mind, their conscience, accentuating that great truth that the apostles just preached in Acts 4.12, for there is no other name given among men by which people might be saved, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for such a blessed Savior. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.